Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topsher. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Biden orders the release of Intel, potentially linking COVID to a Wuhan lab. Nigeria's Peter Obi petitions a court to challenge last month's presidential election. Sri Lanka secures a $2.9 billion bailout from the IMF. A report finds the UK's Met Police to be institutionally racist, misogynistic, and homophobic. Ukraine launches a drone attack on Crimea. The U.S. concludes that war crimes were committed by all sides in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict. Saudi Arabia releases a jailed U.S. citizen. The GOP Freedom Caucus opposes guaranteeing bank deposits above $250,000. A Fox producer sues the network over alleged coaching before her Dominion testimony. And Texas adds HSBC to its energy sanctions list. In our top story, President Biden orders a COVID and Wuhan lab intel release. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, New York Post, Spectrum Local News, Politico, and ITN. U.S. President Joe Biden signed off on legislation on Monday requiring the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information on any possible links between a Chinese lab and the origins of COVID. The House approved the COVID origins bill on March 10th after the Senate passed it without opposition a week prior. Following a week of deliberation, Biden said in an official statement that he shares Congress's goal of releasing as much information as possible about COVID. The bill cites potential links between the research at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology and the outbreak of COVID. However, the law will reportedly still allow for redactions to protect information deemed sensitive. According to the bill, the Director of National Intelligence has 90 days to declassify all pertinent information. The director is then to submit the information as a report to Congress. The U.S. intelligence community has been divided regarding COVID's origins, with the Department of Energy and FBI leaning toward the lab leak theory, while other agencies support the natural origin theory. A report released last week linked the COVID virus with the sale of raccoon dogs in a Wuhan market, bolstering evidence that the pandemic could have originated through an infected animal. However, the findings have yet been peer-reviewed. And there's no definite explanation as to how the virus could have transferred to humans. Thank you, Eric, for laying out the facts on that first story. On this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. We'll start this round with a Democratic narrative from The Guardian. Ultimately, Biden has made the right call by passing this legislation. Though the bill may exacerbate tensions with China amid an already strained relationship between Biden and Xi Jinping, It's a sound move by the Democratic leader who is dealing with stiff Republican resistance and endeavoring to scientifically determine how COVID came to be. Fox News brings us a Republican narrative. This is, of course, good news. The next step must be holding the government and Biden administration accountable for their poor response to this origin controversy. The American people deserve to hear what they knew about COVID in the early days and after, as the U.S. Intelligence Committee continues to move toward the lab leak theory the U.S. will have to put even more pressure on China and the U.S. bureaucracy for answers. Well, this opens up a new potential of the cause, the real cause of COVID, being that raccoon dogs don't know their ABCs. Would you have one as a pet? No, raccoons are, I'd be afraid of it. I think it would try and kill me. Yeah. (laughs) 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. In Nigeria, Obi petitions the court over a disputed presidential election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Vanguard News, Al Jazeera, WHIO, and Reuters. Peter Obi, Nigeria's opposition Labour Party candidate, filed a formal court petition on Tuesday to challenge the outcome of last month's presidential election. Labour Party spokesperson Yunusa Tonko told journalists on Tuesday that the party is challenging the qualifications of the candidate that was declared the winner. We are also challenging the processes that led to his declaration as the winner, among others. Obi, who finished third in last month's presidential race, has asked the court to declare him the winner and revoke winner Bola Tanubu's victory, arguing, among other complaints, that Tanubu was not qualified to run because he does not meet the minimum educational requirements. Elected observers from the European Union, the Commonwealth, and other groups have criticized a number of issues with the election, including a lack of oversight to prevent vote manipulation, poor planning, and voting delays. However, the observers have not made any fraud claims. The appeals court has 180 days to hear and make a ruling on Obi's challenge. If Obi is unsatisfied with the outcome of the appeals court, he can take the challenge to the Supreme Court, which will deliberate on an appeal within 60 days. The Supreme Court of Nigeria has never overturned an election result, but legal challenges are fairly common. If no change in election results occur, Tanubu will be sworn in as president on May 29th. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from CNN. The Labor Party is right to explore all legal and peaceful options to prove that Obi won the election. There were many issues with this year's election, and additional oversight is needed to check the election results. Tanubu is not qualified to be president. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Tanubu has already been declared the winner of the February presidential election and received the necessary number of votes. Political rivals of Tanubu and their supporters need to drop their baseless challenges and join together to strengthen the nation. In our next story, Sri Lanka secures a $2.9 billion bailout from the IMF. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters and NDTV. Sri Lanka has secured a $2.9 billion bailout from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF as it faces its worst economic crisis since independence. The IMF's executive board approved a four-year bailout program, authorizing an immediate release of about $333 million and opening up financial support from other institutions following Colombo's adoption of austerity measures to meet IMF preconditions. IMF staff had provisionally approved the bailout in September, but the final green light was held up until China, the island's biggest bilateral lender, agreed to restructure its loans to Sri Lanka. According to the IMF, the Extended Fund Facility, or EFF, arrangement program aims to restore Sri Lanka's macroeconomic stability and debt sustainability, mitigate the economic impact on the poor and vulnerable, safeguard financial sector stability, and strengthen governance and growth potential. President Ranil Wickremesinghe said the program would allow the country to access up to $7 billion in overall funding and help strengthen Sri Lanka's position in international capital markets as the Indian Ocean nation tries to recover from economic and social calamity. Sri Lanka has been experiencing economic turmoil since it defaulted on its foreign debt in April 2022. Former President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the country and resigned in July amid social upheaval. 
being replaced by Rick Ribmasinghe, who has implemented strict spending cuts to secure IMF funds. Thank you, Eric. And we'll start this round of Narrative Spins with Narrative A, written by Lanka Business Online. While Sri Lanka has endured many hardships over the past few years due to converging crises, the country has an opportunity to rise above economic collapse and political instability to forge a new future. The road to recovery will not be easy, but with some help from creditors and buy-in from citizens, Sri Lanka can start to provide its people with hope and security. Lowy Institute is giving us a narrative B for this story. Sri Lanka's economic crisis has spiraled into a human rights catastrophe that must be addressed before it's too late. Sri Lankans are struggling to put food on the table, and many people are unable to receive vital health care. The IMF's loan will do little to reverse the deep human cost of the ongoing crisis until the country's social problems are effectively dealt with. Our next story is a report that the UK's Met Police is racist, misogynistic, and homophobic. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Times, Forbes, Herald Scotland, Sky News, The Telegraph, and The Guardian. The UK's Metropolitan Police, or MET, is rife with systematic and fundamental issues, and the institution itself rests on a bedrock of discrimination, according to a report from Baroness Louise Casey released on Tuesday. The review, commissioned following the rape and murder of Sarah Everard in 2021 by a serving officer, details shortcomings in basic procedures, including the poor state of usage of fridges containing forensic samples, reportedly leading to evidence becoming unusable and rape cases being dropped. The report found that 22% of staff with protected status and 33% with an ongoing illness or disability experienced bullying. Homophobia was also found to be prevalent, with almost one in five lesbian, gay, and bisexual MET staff members having experienced homophobia according to the report. Other details revealed a female officer who tried to take her own life after becoming the victim of domestic and sexual abuse, reportedly at the hands of an officer on her team. After two years of investigation into her allegations, nothing was done. The report, which also concluded that the black community in London is over-policed and under-protected, and the internal misconduct system is in need of a serious overhaul, makes 16 recommendations for reform. Current Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley, who has been in the role since September, has kicked back against Casey's statements, saying he wouldn't use the labels of institutionally racist, misogynistic, or homophobic to describe the force. A new oversight board for the Met, to be chaired by London Mayor Sadiq Khan, will be put in place. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts of that story. We have a couple of spins. The first one is a left narrative coming from New Statesman. The severity of this report raises the possibility of abolishing an institution that's failing the public and is set on a bedrock of discrimination. Perhaps most significantly, Casey finds that the depravity and suffering detailed in the review all link back to the austerity imposed under the coalition and conservative governments since 2010. There's little chance that the Tories will be able to defend their record on crime in the lead-up to the next election. Their blindsided focus on balancing the books has put the British public at risk and led to the country's largest police force reaching a potentially irreversible state of corrupt dilapidation. The right narrative is written by The Spectator. Overemphasizing the role of austerity in this sorry state of affairs risks implying some kind of vindication of Met management, which Casey identifies as a series of disconnected and competing moving parts with broken vetting procedures and a lack of long-term planning. 
Senior officers facilitated a culture of bullying and discrimination to dominate an institution that's supposed to ensure justice and provide protection. Though the findings that the Met is institutionally sexist, racist, and homophobic are certainly contentious, there's no doubt the Met requires fundamental reform, which must come from the top. In our next story, Ukraine launches a drone attack on Crimea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, TASS, Associated Press, and Ukraine Forum. Overnight on Monday, a drone attack on Crimea struck the city of Zonkoy in the north of the peninsula annexed by Russia in 2014. While Ukraine hasn't claimed responsibility, its defense ministry alleged that Russian-caliber missiles intended for its Black Sea fleet were destroyed as they were being transported by rail. Russian media denied the presence of military targets near the strike and said only civilian infrastructure was damaged, including a shop, a house, and a school dormitory. Local officials said one civilian was injured and alleged that the drones were packed with shrapnel. Neither the Ukrainian or Russian account could be independently confirmed. Meanwhile, coinciding with China's Xi Jinping visit to Russia, the prime minister of rival power Japan, Fumio Kishida, made an unannounced trip to Ukraine on Tuesday to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. This came as Zelensky on Monday thanked the U.S. for its latest $350 million military aid package, consisting largely of ammunition and rockets for high-mobility artillery rocket systems. Zelensky also hailed the 2 billion euro ammunition plan approved by the EU on Monday. Elsewhere, Vaselina Benzia, Russia's ambassador to the UN, told a press conference on Monday that Russia plans to hold an informal meeting of the UN Security Council in April to discuss what he described as the real situation of Ukrainian children taken to Russia amid the war, an issue that gained the spotlight last week when the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants to Russian President Vladimir Putin and another officer over the matter. Nabenzia said the issue of the children was totally overblown and that they were taken to Russia simply because we wanted to spare them of the danger that military activities may bring. When asked if Russia would return the children, he said, When conditions are safe, of course. Why not? Thank you, Eric. The Guardian brings us an anti-Russia narrative. The attack on Crimea, illegally annexed by Russia in 2014, not only struck a legitimate military target, destroying cruise missiles to be used by Russia in its illegal invasion of Ukraine, but it also served another blow to Putin and exposed major weaknesses in Moscow's defense system. The pro-Russian narrative coming from RT. Russia's air defense was able to successfully counter Ukraine's attack on Crimea, which hit civilian targets only, damaging a shop, a house, and a part of a school. The people of Crimea overwhelmingly voted in favor of joining the Russian Federation in 2014, and these types of assaults can't be tolerated. And from time to time, we get a nerd narrative on this program. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. This is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Bring those kids back when the war's over. Yeah, bring them back happy. <laughs> The U.S. concludes that war crimes were committed by all sides in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, CNN, France 24, and DW. The U.S. claimed on Monday that all parties in Ethiopia's two-year Tigray conflict committed war crimes and called for those most responsible to be held accountable. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the calculated and deliberate war crimes were committed by the Ethiopian and Eritrean National Armies, as well as the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, and neighboring Amhara region forces. He added that Ethiopian, Eritrean, and Amhara forces were also involved in what he characterized as crimes against humanity, including murder, rape, and other sexual violence and persecution, and referred to alleged ethnic cleansing committed by Amhara forces against Tigrayans. This comes less than a week after Blinken visited Ethiopia, where he reportedly didn't address the issue of alleged war crimes, but spoke with both sides about the importance of acknowledging atrocities committed by all parties, along with accountability and reconciliation. The Ethiopian foreign ministry accused Washington of taking a partisan and inflammatory stance by accusing Ethiopian, Eritrean, and regional Amhara forces of alleged crimes against humanity while not mentioning TPLF forces. Amhara and Eritrean forces fought alongside the Ethiopian military against the TPLF and the Tigray War, which began in November 2020, and claimed about 500,000 lives making it one of the deadliest conflicts of the 21st century. Those were the facts, and we have two spins that have emerged from this story. The first one is Narrative A coming from Arab News. While Washington supposedly blames all parties involved for the atrocities of the Tigray conflict, it accuses only Addis Ababa and its allies of crimes against humanity. By doing so, the U.S. continues its campaign against Ethiopia on a smaller scale, having already punished only Addis Ababa and Eritrea, but not the TPLF. With the TPLF having lost the war, caution is needed when the U.S. pretends to now want peace and reconciliation. Narrative B comes from In-Depth News. Though Addis Ababa may not like it, Blinken's remarks are based on an unbiased U.S. review of atrocities during the Tigray War. Amid Blinken's visit to Ethiopia and a new aid package, the U.S. has signaled that the time has come to revitalize the long-standing bilateral relations. Washington and the international community must keep an eye on Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed since he bears the main responsibility for the outbreak of the devastating civil war. In our next story, Saudi Arabia releases a jailed U.S. man. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, and Associated Press. On Tuesday, Saudi Arabia released U.S.-Saudi dual national Saad Ibrahim al-Mahdi from prison more than a year after he was arrested for tweets critical of the kingdom, according to his son. The 72-year-old was sentenced to 16 years in prison before an appeals court upped his sentence to 19 years last month. Almaty's son said his father remains banned from traveling and is staying at his home in the Saudi capital of Riyadh. He added, All charges have been dropped, but we have to fight the travel ban now. It's unclear when Almaty can return to his Florida home, as neither U.S. nor Saudi authorities have commented on his release. Saudi authorities arrested Almaty in November 2021 on several charges, including supporting terrorism, after he landed in Riyadh to visit his family. Almaty's tweets included one noting Crown Prince Muhammad bin Salman's consolidation of power in the kingdom, and another that spoke of journalist Jamal Khashoggi's killing, which U.S. intelligence believes was authorized by the Saudi Crown Prince. Almaty's imprisonment was one of several alleged human rights abuses that had eroded relations between Salman and U.S. President Joe Biden. Both administrations have recently taken steps toward restoring better relations. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story. We'll start this round with Narrative A from Amnesty International. Saudi Arabia's imprisonment of Almaty was part of a pattern of human rights abuses by the government, 
Dozens of people have been prosecuted for their opinions in Saudi Arabia, and there must be a global action to combat this systemic oppression. Riyadh's criminalization of dissent must end now. The Freedom Initiative is giving us narrative B for this story. Almaty's release is a step in the right direction for human rights in Saudi Arabia. Almaty should never have been imprisoned, but it's encouraging to see Saudi Arabia loosen up a little bit in the name of justice. With continued work, hopefully Riyadh's record on human rights will improve along with better relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. I'll bet no one has ever been more excited to return to Florida. What's Good the first point. thing you're going to do when you get out of a Saudi prison? I'm going to Disney World! That's right! <laughs> a GOP caucus opposes guaranteeing bank deposits above $250,000. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Hill, and Politico. The Republican House Freedom Caucus on Monday issued a statement voicing its opposition to any universal federal guarantee of bank deposits more than the current limit. Currently, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantees bank deposits up to $250,000. The GOP group wrote that insuring deposits of more than that amount enshrines a dangerous precedent that encourages future irresponsible behavior that then gets paid for by those who obeyed the rules. Since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank earlier this month, mid-sized banks say they are losing depositors to larger institutions, and they have requested a two-year universal guarantee on deposits to pause the outflows. Granting such a guarantee will require approval from Congress under the 2010 Dodd-Frank financial reform law. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said on Tuesday that her office would protect all deposits when there is a run on banks that could harm the system and that this protection could extend to smaller banks, institutions she had not included in the policy before. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Politico. At this time of shaky consumer confidence in the U.S. banking system, the least the government could do is temporarily ensure all deposits to prevent a dreaded bank run. Such a situation would lead to less competition, while the big banks would get even bigger. After all, the smaller banks are not taking the same risks as the bigger ones, so they should not have to be put at risk. And here's the establishment critical narrative from The Federalist. The government is propping up ultra-wealthy, politically-connected individuals at the expense of average Americans, and this has to stop. Universally protecting all deposits would be a moral hazard that would allow banks to continue their risky behavior without skin in the game. The FDIC is funded on the backs of bank customers. This attempt to protect the wealthy is nothing but another questionable bailout. Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that at least four FDIC-insured banks will fail in 2023. In our next story, a Fox producer sues the network over alleged coaching before her Dominion testimony. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Hill, Fortune, Yahoo News, and Axios. On Monday, Fox News producer Abby Grossberg filed two lawsuits against the network, claiming its lawyers pressured her into giving deceptive testimony in the $1.6 billion defamation suit filed by Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for its highly controversial claims surrounding the 2020 presidential election. Grossberg alleges that before her September 2022 deposition, she was coached in a coercive and intimidating manner to protect executives and on-air figures. In her lawsuits, Grossberg also accused the company of sexism and alleged that part of the network's strategy against Dominion's suit was to push the blame onto Fox host Maria Bartiromo as well as herself. Grossberg, 
who is also head of booking for Tucker Carlson, has warned that she will publicly disclose privileged attorney-client conversations she had with Fox News lawyers ahead of the deposition. Fox had filed for a restraining order against Grossberg, who has been placed on leave, to prevent her from disclosing the exchanges, but dropped the pursuit on Tuesday. A Fox News spokesperson revealed that the company has engaged in an independent outside counsel to investigate Grossberg's concerns, while affirming it would defend against the claims. Now those were the facts on that story. We'll start this round with a left narrative from NPR. Fox News finds itself in real jeopardy concerning its defamation lawsuit defense. While media outlets rarely lose defamation cases, the amount of evidence against the network is exponentially growing. Not only did it knowingly promote false claims, but as detailed in Grossberg's filings, the network also tried to cover its tracks by targeting its own employees. The right narrative comes from Free Republic. While Grossberg's allegations should undoubtedly be investigated, the defamation lawsuit against the network and the stories that have accompanied it, gleefully parroted by the media, are baseless. Freedom of the press is foundational to democracy, and to continue to push that Fox is guilty of anything but journalism is dangerous. And in our final story today, Texas adds the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank of China to energy sanctions list. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar, Bloomberg, and PBS NewsHour. On Monday, Texas added HSBC holdings to its list of financial firms that are allegedly boycotting the oil and gas industry in light of Europe's largest bank's new fossil fuel funding policy. This comes after HSBC's December announcement that it will no longer provide new finance and advisory services for projects pertaining to new oil and gas fields as part of its updated climate strategy. Terming HSBC's new energy policy an attempt to push a social agenda and prioritize political goals over the economic health of their clients, Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar said the firm's policies threaten Texas jobs, state economy, as well as national security. However, HSBC maintained the firm doesn't boycott the fossil fuel industry and instead seeks a balanced approach in the implementation of its net-zero commitment. It supports its clients' transition from a high-carbon to a low-carbon economy. The move to add HSBC to the energy sanctions list, which stems from a state law established in 2021, could prohibit Texas governmental entities from investing in the firm as they are required to sell, redeem, divest, or withdraw all publicly traded securities of blacklisted companies. The crackdown on HSBC for allegedly prioritizing environmental, social, and governance policies over its financial responsibilities came on the day the UN released a report emphasizing the need to move from fossil fuel-powered infrastructure to reduce global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Thank you for the facts of that story, Melissa. Four spins have been generated from this story, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar. Prioritizing ESG, which is part of Progressive's effort to promote woke capitalism, leads financial firms to discount their financial duties. Such policies don't just promote liberal priorities ranging from renewable energy to the Black Lives Matter movement. They lead to disinvestment in fossil fuel companies that provide tax revenue and jobs. Here's the Democratic narrative from Green Biz. ESG considers the financial costs of environmental damage and social upheaval. It doesn't in any way prioritize political or ideological objectives. With ESG funds expected to see massive growth in the coming years, 
U.S. states can attract investors by highlighting projects and companies with a favorable climate or social impact. Narrative C is provided by Quartz. HSBC's annual lending to fossil fuel projects is to the tune of $20 billion. In the past, the bank's executives have downplayed climate change risks. Moreover, HSBC will continue to finance existing fossil fuel projects in line with current and future declining global oil and gas demand, which is why labeling HSBC as a financial company that prioritizes ESG issues is misplaced. And the nerds have the last word today from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 75% chance that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement before 2029 if a Republican wins a 2024 U.S. presidential election. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire. I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.